Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals, making the hardest job in the world just a little bit easier. I'm Hibi Youssef. I hate it here, but also I love it enough to want to make it better, which I think is the perfect way to describe my career in HR. That and a lot of white hairs <laughs> and a lot of really yes. angry nights. Yes. My daughter the other day was playing with my hair as she likes to do it. She's like, oh, mommy, you have some silver hairs. It's like, yes, I do. And yeah. she's like, how did you get those? Those are just my magical silver hairs that show that I've lived an interesting life. And she was like, they're so beautiful. I'm like, ah. Oh. We should all have someone in our lives telling us that our grades are beautiful, right? Hi, all. Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals all about how to make workplace cultures better. I'm your host and founder and creator behind I Hate It Here, Hiba Youssef. Each week, we'll dive into a different topic and talk about how it's impacting work and what you can do about it. Put the wild world of social media to work for your organization with Hootsuite. Broadcast new job opportunities and empower your workforce to share your brand's content with their networks. Find out how at Hootsuite.com. Are you struggling to prove the value of your performance management programs to your executive team? You need 15.5. 15.5's easy-to-use software enables HR leaders to continuously measure the impact of performance to drive business results. Visit 15.5.com demo to schedule a demo today. Joining me today is Kim Rower. Kim, I'm so pumped you're here. Me too. I'm glad that we did this. We'll jump into our first question. I always like to start off each episode with kind of a fun, relevant question to who's joining me for the week. So because you and I love pop culture so much, what's one pop culture moment that lives in your head rent-free? Well, can I give you two? Because I have one that's an oldie but a goodie. I've been thinking a lot lately about the Taylor Swift Kanye, the famous onstage interruption. I'm sort of in a Taylor Swift mood right now. I didn't grow up with Taylor Swift. I'll just put that out there. So I'm late. I'm a late blooming Swifty. But for some reason, I've just been thinking about that moment a lot lately. And I think about it more than I should, considering how long ago it happened. What feelings does it bring up? You know those feelings where you're like, well, that happened and it was pretty shitty. But you know what? We know who the winner of all of this turned out to be. So like, it's hard. You know, In the moment, it was very like, this poor girl, like, Kanye's a dick. And that's still true. But now she's not like this poor girl who just got interrupted on stage. She's like one of the most famous and magical pop stars out there. So I don't feel sorry for Taylor Swift anymore at all. But I think the other reason it's been living in my head rent-free, but I think the reason that it has been at the forefront lately is because I favorited Netflix, the Miss Americana documentary, and I haven't watched it yet. But every time I open my Netflix account, it's like, remember how you want to watch this? Are you going to watch it this time? I'm like, no, I need like a shitty half hour comedy. Like, are you sure you don't want to watch this documentary about Taylor Swift? Like, I do, but like not right now. And so I've been thinking, I've just, Taylor Swift has been on my mind. Hey, Taylor, best friend that I haven't met yet. (laughs) No, she's just been like, uh, she's been on my mind. The other thing I wanted to share, which is a totally different vibe, is for any Summer House fans out there, there's a moment from many seasons ago where your favorite and mine, Lindsay Hubbard, says, you haven't seen me activated. And I use that all the time. Like, you do not want to see me activated. It, it's one of my favorite stupid reality show moments. I can picture it in my head right now. I know where she was sitting at the table and what hand gestures she used. I love it. I just, I love it. What a mess. What a mess. 
we're taking that from this episode. You have not seen me activated. I'm going to start saying that to people and wait for them to pick up on it. It's such a good line. It's such a perfect, oh, you think I'm mad? <laughs> it's like when Jewish mothers are like, you don't know from mad. I love that. No, you, you don't know. You don't actually know what this is like. I was trying to explain to my husband the like this phrase, you don't know from, which is a very common Jewish grandmother phrase. But I, I didn't realize how specifically Jewish it was until I said it around my husband. He didn't know what it was. He's not Jewish, if that wasn't clear. And I said it a few times to friends who are not Jewish. And they're like, what is that? Like, how do you not yeah. know you don't know from? This is it's like a classic. Like, I feel like I have to put on a New York, a New York Jewish accent to say it even. But apparently that's just me, a Jewish person. I love that. That was a great that intro to Kim. Hey, there you are. Activated? You don't know from activated. You don't know from activated. I can't. Oh, God. We're going to have so much fun today together. The other thing, Kim, so you, we didn't even, you didn't even introduce yourself. I just have you telling me your pop culture moment, <laughs> and I don't even ask you. I Who mean, are you? I don't know. Who am I? We're anyway? chaos right now. Um, yeah. That's cool. It's fine. That's probably the best way to introduce me is by jumping in without an introduction, because... I don't know how to do proper. I'm Kim. I am the principal people partner at Oyster, a global employment platform, helping people hire across borders. And I have about 15 years now of experience in the people in HR space, mostly at tech startups. So I'm mostly losing my mind all the time. I have been for the better part of two decades. And my background is in theater. I was a theater person all growing up. I thought that was going to be my career until I needed more stability in my life and ended up in tech. It's funny. I ended up in like the least stable part of tech, like early stage startups. Let's go for some stability, but still more stable than working in theater. I live in Berkeley, California with my husband and two small children who are three and seven, just about, will be by the time this podcast airs. And what else do you need to know about me? I don't know. I'm a little bit witchy and a little bit let's break the world down into pieces so we can rebuild it into something that actually makes sense. Which is why you make the perfect guest on the I Hate It Here That's podcast, right. honestly. I do hate I it feel here. the same way. <laughs> I do hate it here. I hate it here, but we're going to make it better. <laughs> right. Exactly. I hate it here, but also I love it enough to want to make it better, which I think is a perfect way to describe my career in HR. Same. That and a lot of white hairs and a lot of really yes. angry nights. Yes. My daughter the other day was playing with my hair as she likes to do it. She's like, oh, mommy, you have some silver hairs. It's like, yes, I do. And yeah. she's like, how did you get those? Those are just my magical silver hairs that show that I've lived an interesting life. And she was like, they're so beautiful. I'm like, oh, we should all have someone in our lives telling us that our grays are beautiful, right? Yeah. Honestly, she can play with my hair anytime. There's a lot of them hidden in there. <laughs> Like, I can just see one right now, like, because she noticed that they're a different texture than the rest of my hair. They're like curly they and wiry yeah. in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, too. It's like, this one just, like, it looks like it's straight up coming out of my ear, which it's not. Anyway. Vanity Join us today. Podcast. Join us today to talk about HR and white hairs that we're getting from working in HR. The perfect sponsor for like a hair dye would be great right here. But we don't have those. Hair. So we're about to go. The world is about to go back to school. Literally, they've gone back to school. They're going back to school. It's Labor Day weekend. So we're recording this right before Labor Day weekend. This will air right after Labor Day weekend. But something that you and I were talking about recently is we have all these kids going back to school. It feels like the first time since the pandemic started that things are maybe getting somewhat back to normal. 
And so we talked about that a lot. But what are you hearing from HR teams about like this time and space we're in? I don't know if it's because it's like a self-selecting group of HR people that I choose to engage with. But I'm hearing a lot more kind of flexibility and compassion this year than I have in years past. I think the last three years really unlocked something for us in terms of just basic necessity of what we as HR leaders, what we as companies, what we as parents kind of demand from each other and expect from each other. And this year, I've just seen a lot more compassion from companies that is, I believe, related to the push from HR that I've seen, again, self-selecting circle, but like I've seen people pushing for this for the last decade for more flexible work for workplaces that are more conducive to working parents' needs. And this is like the first year that I've really seen the conversation go from HR circles to the bigger company communications. Like you see more external communications about this from companies about supporting caregivers at work and what do parents need this time of year. And I hope it's not just because like the algorithm knows that's what I want to see. I hope this is more (laughs) widespread than my own LinkedIn bubble. But I don't know, it feels more normalized now than it did even a couple of years ago. Do you think that, that a lot of that was because of the pandemic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In my spare time, my nights and weekends time, I work on a company called Tend Lab, where we're trying to change the game for working parents by working collaboratively with companies and their HR teams and their parents, parent employees, and also with government to kind of push the needle, like force the conversation a little more. We really saw an uptick in the desire and the demand for that kind of conversation through the pandemic when there was no hiding anymore. It's not like shit was working for working parents before the pandemic, but it certainly wasn't working when everyone was isolated at home with their children, trying to work, trying to homeschool, trying to keep their families safe. It just sort of exposed all of the cracks that were already there and amplified them in a way that companies couldn't ignore. And that's the scariest thing to me is that we went through this collective traumatic experience. And now so many companies are like, back to the office, back to normal. COVID is over. Let's get back to the way it was before. It's like, A, of all, no, it's not. And B, of all, well, it was before, was it working? Like, why would we not learn from our past? You know, history is doomed to repeat itself. And all the, how many cliches mm. can I come up with? The first thing that comes to mind is a Daniel Tiger song because I just sang it to my daughter this morning about how it's okay to make mistakes. Try and fix them and learn something too. But what are we learning if we're just saying, okay, go back to the office. And now like, if you are sick and you think maybe it's COVID, then stay home, maybe. Like, this is not the revolution that we need. And so I'm, I feel very grateful to be at a company that is fully remote, has been from the beginning, and also grateful for the privilege that I have to be able to make a claim for myself and say, I won't work for a company that requires you to be in office. That's an extremely privileged position to be in. And I recognize that. But I also know that there are millions of parents out there who need more flexibility, even if they are going into the office, even if they want to go into the office five days a week. The flexibility that we had when we were all stuck at home is something that we can learn from and adapt to the modern workforce. The I don't want to say the post-COVID workforce, but the version that we're living with today why can't we learn from what worked for those two, three years and translate that into something that can work for a broader set of companies, a broader set of employees? Yeah. And a lot of these things are not complicated and not expensive. 
It's just harder than going back to normal. I think the pandemic was horrible for a lot of reasons, right? We've lost a lot of people's lives. We learned a lot. A lot of people are still struggling to recover from the pandemic. But I think the other, the good thing, if there is any good thing, is that we learned a lot about what wasn't working at work. And I, I think about that quite a bit because I am thankful for it as we're thinking about like the next future of work. Like, what is that going to look like? Yeah. It's going to look like all the things we uncovered during COVID that weren't working. Like, we don't support parents in the workplace very well. Right. Not to mention all of the research that's come out around people of color and microaggressions in the workplace and how mm-hmm. I can't remember the stat, maybe if we can find it and edit it and post, put, put, put it over my face. Here's the actual number. <laughs> but there is some big number, like close to 50% of employees of color that had been surveyed in this big nationwide survey said that they would not want to return to the office specifically because when they're working from home, they face fewer microaggressions. And it's like, we have to contend with that as a society. We can't just say, well, too bad, go back to the office and we'll do an anti-racism training. It's not going to work. Things are broken. We can't just rebuild on a broken foundation. We have to start over. We have to create something totally new. And I think about kind of the weight that was on all the parents' shoulders during COVID where they were being parents and then they were given flexibility. Now imagining being told, now you have to come into an office and that flexibility is gone. Right. I mean, I'm not a mom. So like, I don't even know all the things that you're dealing with on any given day. I'm sure it's so much and I'm so empathetic towards that. But then I think about like all the women in the workplace that and in couples, women are doing more of the primary caregiving. And I'm just like, why do we continue to not want to support our people? Right. Why are we okay with this? I mean, I was gonna say without going down a big long tangent, but why not? Let's go there. I think These systems are in place because they maintain the capitalist patriarchal model that makes certain people rich, right? Like it all comes back down to that. And the idea that if we don't support parents and caregivers, what are they going to do? Not take care of their kids? Like they're still going to do it. It's just going to be shittier, but they're going to put up with it because they feel like they don't have another choice. They have to have a job. They have to be employed and they have to show up for their families. And what suffers is their mental health and their ability to take care of themselves. And that, you know, if you're looking even just purely economically, like that makes them worse at work. Parents who are burnt out and completely stretched thin are going to perform worse at work, which is going to make your workplace suffer. But we don't want to look at it that way because America was built on the backs of free labor. And you see it in so many places in the workplace, you see it in HR when someone wants to hire interns and they don't want to pay the interns because free mm-hmm. labor. Well, there's a conversation happening right now on LinkedIn that I that I think we've we've both we've both been a part of about do you charge for your time when someone wants to pick your brain, and how do you know when it's okay or when it's not okay? And the only reason we're even having this conversation is because women are starting to question how much of their time they're giving away for free because it's not the men who are asking to have their brains picked for free. It's just not. And there's kind of this like canary in a coal mine parallel to like, if you take like the most marginalized groups and you make something work for them, it's going to work for your whole population, make everything, make things better in the workplace for everyone. So you look at the challenges women are facing and if you can narrow that down to like mothers and working mothers, it's sort of like a, um, I'm a visual person that's not a visual artist. So it's hard for me to just like describe this. I can't like draw you a picture, but like, the problems get progressively worse the deeper you go into the like subset of the population here. So like if you look at working caregivers and then you look at working 
female caregivers, and then you look at working mothers, and then you work at, look at working mothers of color, it just like gets harder and harder and harder. And there's more and more that you have to contend with. But if we start solving for kind of what seems like the most niche segment, you start solving for everybody. Because regardless of how you identify and what explicit parenting needs you have, we can all live better lives if we have more flexibility and more compassion at work. But I will say, it is really fucking hard to be a parent. (laughs) It's really, really hard to be a parent working full time. I don't know if I could do it. I really don't know if I could do it. I had this conversation with a lot of folks who are earlier in their careers, actually. This is one of those like kind of early HR career mentor conversations that comes up a lot is how can you be a working mom today? How does that even work? How do you do it if you and your partner both work? People literally coming to me and asking just like, how? Can you share with me how literally it works? Because it seems so impossible to comprehend. I mean, I think the only reason that I didn't ask those questions is that I have an absurd amount of confidence and just believe that if I want to do something, I can do it. So I'm activated. (laughs) I'm I'm activated at all times. My boss referred to it as having a low shame receptor, which I love. It's kind of like, you just don't give a fuck if people will judge you. I'm like, that is correct, sir. So like, I want to be a working mom. I'm going to be a working mom and I'm going to do it differently than the women who came before me because I can, because I say so. And that's, again, that's privilege. That's my particular strain of neurodiversity. That is experience. That is weird levels of confidence. But that's part of it is like, you have to want to do it and then you find a way to do it. And it's, you can't like model yourself after one particular person because that's the thing that we don't talk about is what needs to be true for working parents to be successful. And there's a lot of things that need to be true. And so if you look at you know, there's the famous image of the was the Bumble CEO who IPO'd with a baby on her hip and everyone's like, yeah, working moms. Like, But where's the like, where's the piece where she talks about all of the different components that made it possible for her to ring the bell while holding her baby? Let's talk about the access to childcare. Let's talk about the support at home. Let's talk about the spouse. Let's talk about parents. Like, we're living in a very strange world right now that's not designed in the way that people were meant to live and parent. We're isolated in our own spaces. Many people don't live close to family. So people are building their own communities, building their own support systems. It's very isolating. It can be very lonely for working parents. So if you combine that with feeling invisible at work and unsupported at work, we're really setting parents up to fail in so many different ways in this society. I feel like I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Do you think like the average parent at work feels unsupported? Yes, absolutely. Unequivocally, yes. I have talked to many parents who've been in companies where I've basically made parent support my pet project amongst any other things I'm doing with HR. I really have a focus on support for parents. And I've had parents consistently, like on a weekly basis, reach out to me to tell me how different it is from other environments they've been in or specific things that they appreciate about the way that we've structured work and the way that we speak about parents at work. But I also learned this like through our research at Tend Lab, through work that we did to study the impact of caregiving in the workplace, that it's just sort of accepted that parents don't get support from their workplaces. And that's just okay somehow. But you just said like most people don't actually live near family that could support them. Right. And their company is not supporting them. So who's supporting our parents, like who's supporting the parents in the workplace? other parents. 
more from each other. Oh, man. I know. But all of you have other responsibilities. (laughs) It's true. I have this incredible parents group that I was a part of founding seven years ago when I was pregnant with my first. And that group of, let's say it's like women and non-binary parents, there's like 30 or 40 of us that are consistently been a part of this group. And that is my lifeline. That has been my primary source of parental support for the last seven years. Because it's a scary world out there in the parenting communities. Like if you look on like Facebook communities or baby center communities or like online communities for parents can get very toxic and very scary and very unhelpful, like really fast. And so having a safe place to find your parent community is really important. And whether that's an in-person community or an online community, that's how parents are getting support is from each other, from other parents. This is why like parenting ERGs are super important at work. Having a, an ERG, whether it's for caregiving people of all types, whether it's specifically for parents, specifically for moms, how you structure that ERG will depend on what your employee population looks like and what your capacity the company has. But if a company can provide some form of that safe place for parents to talk to each other, it's not even necessarily about getting through parenting at work or how to negotiate policies or how to like navigate the world that you're in. So much of it is just like having a place to connect to other parents who are in the trenches with you. And I see that at Oyster in our Slack channel for we have one that's for parents and one that's for pregnant people. At both places, people have said like, it's just so nice to have a place where I can connect with other parents. And I know not everyone has a Slack community that are full of trusted, loving, supportive people that they can go to, right? That's like, you might as well try to foster that at work. Try to foster that amongst the caregivers in your company. Give them space. If nothing else, if you can't give like, you know, expensive benefits or provide access to perks and apps and all these kinds of things, like the least you can do is, is make space. Ready to put social media to work for your organization? Hootsuite is the social media software for businesses of all sizes, from the mom and pop down the street to Ikea, Domino's, and the World Health Organization. And Talus, Europe's largest paper and comms distributor, uses Hootsuite for talent acquisition. They cut down the time it takes to recruit new employees by three weeks using Hootsuite. Find out how you can do the same at Hootsuite.com. Ready to lead your team to peak performance? 15.5's comprehensive performance management platform equips HR leaders with the tools they need to navigate the sometimes rugged terrain of performance management. From 360 performance reviews to robust goal setting and OKR tracking to ongoing manager-employee feedback tools like weekly one-on-ones and check-ins. With 15.5, you can ensure that employees are performing their best and your business is growing. Visit 15.5.com demo to schedule a demo today. People always ask me, like, why do I care so much about this? Like, I get asked all, like, you're not, a, you're not a mom. Like, why do you care? And I'm like, how can I do my job as an HR professional and not care about the employees in the workplace and what they're facing? Yeah. And parents, I just think it seems so hard. Like it, and in our structure, like when we were growing up, I only had my dad worked, right? But now I think it's more common because of how expensive it is to live in this world that now both parents are working now. And so when you have that structure in place, that's two people at two different companies potentially not getting support from their company on the caregiving that they need to do, that usually someone's career has to take a backseat because they're making the sacrifices to be the parent so the other can also excel in their job. 
I hear commentary from companies from people saying, well, but your kids are in school. So when your kids are in school, you can work. And it's just, it's not that simple. Because first of all, school is, in most cases, it's from like eight to two, let's say, maybe 2.30. And then you have to pay for aftercare because the workday doesn't end at the same time the school day ends. So you have to figure out how you're going to get your kid from school and get them to some sort of after school activity that will provide you with childcare until you can finish your workday. We are very lucky that we have an aftercare program at our school that's affordable, that like we don't have to go pick her up. She's already on campus there, which is fantastic. But a lot of people don't have that option. A lot of people, like the school day ends at 2, 2.30, and then they just have to figure out what to do with their kids until they're off their shift or until they are able to leave the office. When I was working in an office in San Francisco, I had to commute an hour each way. And luckily, my husband worked close to where the kids were in school. So he was in charge of pickup because he could actually get there by 5 when the daycare ended, when the childcare ended. Like it wouldn't have been possible for me. I wasn't getting home till six six thirty, and then someone's got to make dinner, and someone's got to get the kids bathed if it's one of the days of the week that you bathe your children. There's so much. I was talking to someone the other day about the before and after, and there's a great book podcast called The Second Shift, Double Shift, Second Shift. I need to look this up and make sure I'm saying it right. I think it's the Second Shift. Anyway, it's this, this concept that you start your day way before your workday starts and you end your day way after your workday ends. So like by the time parents show up in the office at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., they've already lived like a three-hour workday because your kids get up somewhere between 5.30 and 6.30 or 7, depending on your particular child. And then you have to go through the morning routine of getting them up, getting them out of bed, getting their teeth brushed, getting them dressed, getting them fed, making sure their backpack is ready telling them 700 times to put their shoes on, helping them get their shoes on because they can't actually do it themselves and getting them out the door and to school. And that's assuming like every one of those steps is going right and that there's no tantrums and that there's no owies that need tending or hair that needs extra attention that day or fights over the outfit or like there's so many different ways that that can get thrown off track. And that's just everything you do before you sit down to work. And then you go through your whole workday, hoping that you don't get a call from school to say your kid has a runny nose, you need to come pick them up, or your kid has a fever, you need to get pick them up, or God forbid, there's like an emergency at the school. And then you finally pick your kid up, and then you go through the nighttime routine. Okay, as soon as they walk in the door, it's check for homework, check your backpack, please put your shoes here and not on the floor where everyone's going to trip over them. And oh, look, the floor is covered in toys because we never got to clean those up. And let's get you fed and bathed and to bed. And then you deal with the bedtime routine. And it's like, finally, at least in our house with a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, finally, we get both kids like in bed and hopefully asleep. It's like 8.30 or 9 at night. And then like, maybe I still have an hour or two of work I want to catch up on because I didn't get to do it during the day. Or maybe I just need to like turn into a zombie on the couch and watch terrible reality shows. And then I try to get myself into bed at a reasonable time because guess what? The kids wake up overnight still. Like, you don't sleep through the night. Like I can't remember the last time I slept all the way through the night. And then you wake up the next morning and you do it all again. And there's so much joy and love and fun in all of this. And like, it's such a stereotype. I'm like, I wouldn't change it for the world, except for like, maybe they could sleep better. But it's just the reality for parents. Like when I talk to friends who don't have kids and it's like, the morning routine is like, I get up and I have my coffee and I do some writing and I do some yoga and then I start work and then I you know, have my work day. And then after work, I like go out to dinner, or I decide what I want to cook that night. And I relax into my evening and I go to a workout class. And I'm like, it's just a very different life, right? 
And it's not that one is better or worse or one is good or bad, but workplaces are treating these as the same. They're not. They're really they're not, not the same experiences. Right? Yeah. And that, that applies to people with all kinds of caregiving needs, not just parents. And parents are the biggest group that we talk about, but there's also people who are doing elder care or spousal care or any other type of caregiving that takes you away from only caring for yourself and your work. And I just think we treat these types of work needs as equal and they're not. And flexibility can apply to anyone who needs flexibility, but parents bring so much to the workplace. There's been a lot of research on this, the particular skills and the way that your brain changes when you become a parent and how that makes you better at work. Like At the very least, we should be trying to enable parents to be successful in the same way that our non-parent employees are afforded that opportunity. It reminds me of that stat that halfway through 2020 came out or like maybe early 2021, where like women left during the beginning of COVID, women left the workforce in waves. Yeah. Because they're like, we can't do this job full time remotely and also manage our children who are remote going to school. And that stat stuck with me for so long because I just I continue to think we don't do enough for our parents. And like you've shared so candidly and thank you for that, all the things that parents are going through on any given day. And it should matter to every HR person out there because a portion of your workforce is parents. Yeah. And you want to build a work, like you want to build a workplace culture. That's great. Well, why don't you start thinking about the experiences that other people are having at the company? And do you even survey that in your demographics when you're looking at gender, age, race, tenure? Are you looking at caregiver status? Do you even know how many of your employees are caregivers? There's this great research that came out of Harvard several years ago that was about the end result was that employers thought that about 25-30% of their employees were caregivers and that it didn't really impact the way they show up at work. And when they did the research, turns out 75% of employees have some sort of caregiving responsibility. And almost all of them, like the vast majority of them, said that it negatively impacts their ability to show up at work. What if we started approaching the way we create policy and practice with that assumption instead? that the majority of our employees have needs outside of work that negatively impact their ability to show up? And how can we support them so that they can show up and be their best? That should be the lens. Well, that leads me perfectly to my next question then. What should HR teams be doing to help support parents? Asking questions and being curious about what they actually need. When we did a survey internally, by far, the thing that was most impactful for people was flexibility, more so even than paid time off, more so than compensation. It was flexibility is what parents need. But, you know, I don't claim to know everything about every caregiver demographic and how that's represented at every company. So start by asking, ask the questions and actually be curious about the answers. Engaging in that dialogue helps you create programming or opportunities that are going to be right for your organization and your employee population. But again, it's like a it's a pretty much a given that flexibility is going to be somewhere near the top of the list. And who doesn't benefit from flexibility, right? Like everybody benefits from having more autonomy and more flexibility in their work. And so thinking about how do you actually make that feasible for your organization, whether you are completely remote and asynchronous forward, or you're all co-located in one office space, 
how can you actually build more flexibility into the way you work? And you have to be really intentional about it and think about it, not just from an HR policy lens, but from a practicality and practice standpoint. I think a lot of times in HR, we get relegated to this like policy role and Mm -hmm. are less involved with the actual practical application and stickiness of the policies. And that's where manager training, that's where employee training, that's where like frequent assessment, you have to think of it as behavior change. And when you're rolling out new programming or new business ideals or new ways of working, you have to think about what is the result you want to have after six months, after 12 months? How are you going to measure whether it's successful? It's not just about HR sending an email saying, choose your own hours. Now we have flexible work. Because then what happens is people don't do it consistently. And some teams do it better than others. And on teams where it's not going so well, because for whatever reason, they don't have the right framework, then they start to say, well, flexible work doesn't work. And yeah, that's because they were unsupported in their process of rolling that out. So thinking about what will actually work for your organization and putting something in place that is specific to the work that you need to get done and making it custom by team or making it adaptable by team and HR being that support and like supporting the managers and kind of holding their hand through the rollout with the goal of making it successful. The goal shouldn't be like right away. Everyone can just do this on their own because it's behavior change. Behavior change is hard. Yeah. Flexibility is it's a really interesting one. And like what you said about changing behaviors, also very hard. And you would think like us going through a global pandemic would make us like, I don't know, a little bit better at, at these types of things. But it's not, but we're not. But we're, and people are no. still, they're still really struggling to understand like why people need flexibility. So like I look at all these big CEOs that are saying, well, we must return to the office. We must return to the office. Mm-hmm. And I, I really just want to ask them like, do you actually care about your employees? Because if you did, you would understand that like parents, caregivers, people of color, the LGBTQ plus community, none of us have good experiences at the office. Right. And you're also taking away the thing that's going to support us if we have that flexibility of not being forced to come to an office and do work. Well, that's the, like the question that I have for the world is like, I don't know that a lot of these CEOs care because they see their workers as infinitely replaceable. And they care about filling their staff with ideal workers, which is like the ideal worker model from the, let's say it's like the 1950s, or it's like, you are a straight white man with a family at home, your wife takes care of your children, and you just go to work and come home and that's, you know, that's the model. And if, if they don't actually care about having a more diverse workplace, if they don't actually care about the individual people that work for them, then what motivation do they have to make any change? Because- the pressure is not immediately felt by them as the CEO raking in all the money. It's like, will the workers all go on strike? And now there's like, how many workers need to strike in order for it to be noticeable? Mm. How much damage needs to be done to their brand reputation for it to be noticeable? And like, why is this all the responsibility of the marginalized people to make the sacrifice and take the step to prove how valuable they are and why they need to have better support. I mean, this is why unions exist, right? This is why strikes happen. We're in a very strike-aware moment right now in our particular family because my sister is currently on strike as part of the WGA, the Writers Guild strike down in LA. And my children are both obsessed with Newsies right now. So we've been talking a lot about (laughs) strikes. My mom is also a teacher and was on strike earlier this year. So like striking and unions is a big topic of conversation in our little socialist house. But it's 
there isn't like a parents union, right? There isn't like even like a tech workers union, right? So who is going to make the change? Who's going to make it happen? How is it going to actually be impactful and not just a bunch of us sitting around in a vacuum talking to each other about how we need to make change? I'm a part of an activist group called the Care Force that it's a combination of people in journalism and media, in technology, government, in like business, coming together to try to find solutions that combine all these different facets of society, because that's what you need. You need government and business owners and workers. You need people from all parts of the problem, frankly, to be a part of the solution. One of the initiatives we've been talking about is in the same way that there's mandatory reporting on race and gender representation. Now, finally, we want to see if we can get caregiver status to be a mandatory reporting category. You know, it's a long way off. We spoke to the people who were responsible for the bill that resulted in the EEOC reporting. And that was like decades of work. So it's like, this is not going to happen overnight. But the only way to make changes to start somewhere. Can't just keep waiting. Can't just keep waiting. Okay, so what would you say to the HR person who is trying to build a better workplace for parents and caregivers, but is getting pushback from their leadership team? Again, I feel like I say this for every answer always, but like, get really curious and demand answers. You know, depending on your workplace culture, like maybe demanding answers is not appropriate, but don't take no for an answer. Like have open conversations with whoever you're getting the pushback from. And really interrogate why they're saying no. Do they have enough information to, for that no to be an informed no? And if it is a reasonable and informed no, depending on what you're asking for, you know, it might be, don't let that be the end of the conversation, the end of the sentence. You know, in the same way in like improv, you always do yes and. I think with no's, it's always like a no, but what about this? And continuing the conversation and having a lot of different ways to move the conversation forward because there's not one solution that's going to be right for everyone. And whatever small bits of progress you make, celebrate them. Because there's one thing that I have seen happen every single time is if you celebrate a very small win that is way smaller than you wanted it to be, people will be happy and then they'll ask for more. And then that you have more data to back up why these things are important. If you don't do anything, there's nothing for people to react to. But if you give them something to react to, it's like if you have no parental leave policy, people will be like, oh, we just don't have one. Like, we just figure it out. But if you have a parental leave policy that's you get eight weeks of paid leave, people will be like, well, this company gets 12. Why don't we get 12? And then if you do 12, then they're like, yeah, but my coworker in Europe gets a year. Like, what's up with that? And you just like, you have to be able to that's use the voice of your people. <laughs> that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's talk about creating inclusive parental leave policies across 70 countries. That's been a fun time. But it's, I mean, I feel like your job as HR is to push for these programs, but back it up with as much data as you can. And whether that's data from what your employees are asking for or data from what other companies are doing, data from research that's been done, like this is not a new phenomenon supporting parents at work. It's a newly a part of our zeitgeist because companies were forced to reckon with it during the pandemic. But this is not a new thing, people struggling to balance parenting at work. There's a ton of research out there to support this. I have a guide I can link uh, for when this when this podcast goes live to something that I worked on that was like essentially a guide for companies to better support caregivers at work. Here are some tangible things that you can do and ways to action on it. But a lot of it comes down to 
listening and implementing what's reasonable and making plans for implementing more and really communicating with the people you're serving. I am, well, one, I can't wait for you to link to that guide, but I just think it's like such an important conversation that we have to keep having because we witnessed so much change in the last three years during the pandemic. And I, like you and I said at the beginning, like we don't want to go back to the way things were. We want to build a better future, which is truly what I hated here is all about. But I am thankful, Kim, that you joined me today so we can talk more and share more about what parents are facing in the workplace because I just don't think enough people talk about it. And I feel like a lot of moms and new parents in the workplace are afraid to ask for what they need to be successful when the reality is like we as HR people should be thinking about that ahead of time and trying to build a workplace where anyone can be successful. Right. And we should be the voice of the people who are afraid or who are disempowered to use their own voice. Like we have a position of relative power to use our voice to represent that for like very super practical very super practical, tangible thing you can do is provide a list instead of just going to your parents and saying, what do you need? Give a list of options of like, here are some things that we've been thinking about. We don't know if they're all possible for our organization, but here's a starting off point. What from this list would be helpful to you? And is there stuff on this list that we like, did we leave stuff off? Because to your point, a lot of working parents, especially working mothers, don't even know where to start in asking for what they need. Unless you've done like a lot of therapy or have a really motivational friend group, like, or have seen other examples, you don't know what to ask for and you're scared to ask for it because there must be a reason they're not offering it. And if I ask for it, then I'm singling myself out as a needy employee and I don't want to do that at a time when I'm already needy because maybe I need to like take time out of my workday to pump or I need to leave early to pick my sick kid up at school. Like I already need so much. Like how can I ask for more? And so knowing that that's the default place that a lot of working moms are coming from, how can you as HR support them in having a voice? And I will call out because it's it's September now. We're just for a lot of people just getting back to school, whether it was a couple weeks ago or this week or next week. But as we're thinking about Q3 and Q4 and thinking about your planning for the next fiscal year, remember that by January, February, parents are already starting to think about their summer childcare. So like our kids have just gone back to school. And by the time we're into the new year and we're like kicking off Q1 and getting all started, there's another part of our brain that's thinking about what the hell am I going to do in June, July, and August. That it happened so early was relatively new to me because I've only had a kid in school that has summer break for two years now. But that was something I wasn't prepared for as a parent. And if I didn't have flexibility at work to make those calls to the summer camps or to put a reminder on my calendar that at 10 a.m. I need to open the website for the summer camp we want to go to and sign up at 10 o'clock because by 10.02, it'll be sold out like in in February. Like just knowing that parents are dealing with that on top of all of the other stuff they're dealing with, it's just like, it's just good to keep that perspective in mind that it's not just about you ship your kids off to school. Now you can commit yourself wholly to work. There's a yeah, whole slew of other things that maybe just as time sensitive as your work deadlines. Yeah. So what we're Which, what I'm hearing like the from summer you. camp debacle is a whole. It's a whole. There's a really great New York Times piece on <laughs> on the nonsense of trying to find care over the summer, but that's all. Other people have spoken about that better than me. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I was never allowed to go to summer camp. My mom stayed at home with us, and I went to the public library. That's where I spent my summers. And a lot of kids, like my mom was like not a working mom. Yeah. 
And that's, I mean, today, I mean, you hear stories, there's, again, like I said, there's articles about this that speak to it way more research than I, but there's a lot of kids whose parents work full time and who either don't have access to or can't afford summer care. And so the kids stay home by themselves and are told, like, go to the library, walk to the park, like, you're just going to be home by yourself all day, every day during the summer. And some of these kids are not really old enough to be doing that. There's, and it's just, there's parents so much are really, really struggling. Yeah. This is a whole other topic. Yeah. But this, what I tell HR people and what I will tell our listeners to, to think about here is that just remembering that at various times of the year, in the same way you're thinking about like religious calendars, holiday calendars, your company diversity and inclusion holiday calendars, think about what parents are going through just even relative to the school year, not even relative to holidays and travel and birthdays and did I get a gift for that kid that we have to take to the party and that like just even looking at the academic school year calendar and how that lines up with your business calendar. Even if it's as basic as, hey, parents, are you going to need anything, any extra support around back to school season? How can we help you in terms of finding summer childcare for your kids? Do you need time? Do you need resources? Do you, like, How can we help you? And companies do all kinds of things. There's a slew of Famtech companies out there that are building apps and tools, programs, to support working parents. And if your company has the budget to work with a third-party provider to help parents, like, please fucking do it. Do that before you do, like, dry cleaning service or gym memberships. Like, please do this. And if you don't, at least talk to the parents and find out what they need and what's stressing them out and how you might be able to support them, even if it's not financially. I think a parents employee resource group could be so helpful because a lot of times like parents want community in the workplace and then you can find out through that community like what it is they need to be successful. So I love the step of like if you're wondering about how to support your parents, ask them like Kim said, but also give them an opportunity to find community with each other. Yeah, because that's something I just don't I think we like we forget that during the before the pandemic connection was much easier and yeah. now it's uh, kind of hard. And if you could yeah. create a space for your parents to your working parents and working caregivers, a space for them to find support from each other and then also bring to you the HR person, like what they need to be successful. I think then the buy-in is already there. Like you have advocates right. already that want the same thing. Exactly. I mean, there's plenty of resources out there for models for employee resource groups and ways to support folks in terms of using them as a place to gather intel about what you can be doing better, using them as a focus group, basically. And I will say also, like, if you can, pay your ERG leaders to do. Please do. That's definitely. (laughs) That's the minimum. Please pay them. Okay. (laughs) I've had a blast today chatting with you, Kim. I love all the things you make me think about. And I just feel like I leave our conversations with the ability to be more empathetic to what other people are experiencing in the workplace. So I'm just so thankful that you were able to join me today. With that, I still have one final question. I'm going to ask everybody this season on the podcast. What is your one HR hill that you will die on? This one goes out to my early stage HR friends. And that is you do not have to be everything to everyone all the time. And you do not have to be everyone's friend. And you do not have to say yes to everything all the time. We get this reputation, self-inflicted or not, that in HR, your job is to help and your job is to help everyone with everything. And that is just not true. And it is just not sustainable. You are able to be in such a position of strength as an HR leader, but you have to draw those boundaries for yourself. 
Oh, I love that. Ah, I feel like I needed that pep talk today, honestly. <laughs> I got you. No one's going to give you the boundaries. They're just going to step right over them unless you build walls. You got to like fortify your yourself. I love that. I will only add one thing to that because I think that is a beautiful hot take. Just get really comfortable saying no. I just think like no is the one thing that I wish HR people knew how to say more or felt empowered to say more. No, I'm not going to be doing that. I am still struggling with that to this day. It is a hard thing if you are conditioned as a helper. If you grew up being a helper and you found yourself in HR because you like to help people, it is going to be a hard lesson to learn, but an incredible one and a super important one. I love it. Thank you so much, Kim, for joining me today. Could you tell everybody how to get in touch with you? How do they find you, follow you, all the great things? Yeah, yeah. you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. Just search my name. With everyone else. (laughs) (laughs) There's not a lot of me out there. And I'm on Twitter at Kim's Kitchen Sink, where it's hybrid of (laughs) yelling about HR and yelling about being a parent. So if you like parenting and people ops, that's kind of my thing everywhere on the internet. But yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn are where I'm most, most around. I love it, Kim, The at the intersection of parenting and people ops. That's, That's a great bio deal. line I just That's wrote for you. <laughs> just, Thank you. I'm kidding. Thank you so Thank much. You. What would I do without you? Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with all the latest HR resources by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you love I Hate It Here, tell an HR friend. I'll see you next time.